We've been in the book of Joshua and before that studying the life of Joshua for about 25 Lord's Day evenings now. And just for context, let me remind you in our studies, Israel has been delivered by a mighty hand from Egyptian slavery. They've wandered in the wilderness but have been provided for by a sovereign Lord. Then the Lord has brought them into the promised land, fulfilling his ancient promise. Christ has come to Joshua, the greater Joshua to the lesser Joshua, in a theophany. We just read of this in Joshua 5. And Christ appeared to Joshua as a man with a drawn sword and military garb to show Joshua that he's going to fight their enemies. He's going to lead them into the land. And Christ has promised Joshua that he will conquer Jericho. Now, the conquest of this city, Jericho, is vitally important. We can see that by how much space is given to it. Other major cities later in the book of Joshua will get only two or three verses of narrative to tell how the nation of Israel conquers that city or the other one. But Jericho gets a whole chapter and in some detail. Jericho is the first city that the nation of Israel will conquer as they come into the promised land. It's the first fruits of the people's promised inheritance. Jericho turns out to be the prototype of the wicked in their feudal rebellion against Jehovah and his people. And the fall of Jericho is a type and a symbol of the overthrow of all the powers arrayed against our God. So much that is recorded here concerning Jericho has huge implications for us, and we will spell it out over the next few weeks. But what we see primarily tonight is how the warfare is conducted between God's people and all who oppose the living God. And that's why we're giving some detailed study to this chapter. In addition, we're giving detailed study to it because we're commanded to do so. The Lord has given you a specific command about this moment each week, but especially tonight. There are, there are times when the text, it seems as though that it's simple to spoon feed you. And you can just sit back and let the, the words of the text and exposition roll over you. But tonight is not one of those nights. We say it on a regular basis that we are a church for grown-ups. We strive for maturity, but maturity takes work. Tonight will be one of those nights. You'll need to have your Bible open at Joshua 6 and be prepared to look at several other texts that buttress and, and um, give confirmation to what's in our text. But we know what our mandate is. Every time we gather, we are to be diligent to present ourselves to God as approved workmen who do not need to be ashamed but handle accurately the word of truth. And so the Lord has commanded you tonight to be a workman to think, to gird up your mind, to labor hard, to give your best thoughts and your, your greatest concentration to these moments. One of my pulpit heroes was the Scottish Presbyterian Alexander White, who was a very dignified man. He pastored Free St. George's Church in Edinburgh, Scotland until the age of 80. And as Dr. White would come into his study each morning to prepare to study the Word of God, he would do two things. He would take off his coat hanging on the rack, and he would roll up his sleeves. And then he would lean down, and he would take off his very elegant dress shoes, and he would put on a pair of muddy work boots that he had under his desk. And when people came into his office and they said, Dr. Dr. White, what are you doing? What's with the work boots? He said, when I come into my study and I open the Word of God, I intend to work. And I would encourage you tonight, gird up your minds, purpose to labor with me, 
especially tonight since we'll be looking at symbolism in the text. Symbolism takes work. You'll have to think. And again, we are often too used to having somebody just sort of spill out information like the television does. But let me encourage you tonight to now grab a hold of your mind, think hard because the scripture is worthy of but will require your best thoughts tonight. Let's seek the help of the Lord in that process. Ever gracious God, give us humble, teachable, obedient, and zealous hearts and minds that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we open Joshua chapter 6, there are two symbols there that have great importance for us from this text. We're a little bit wary, as we should be, because of all the abuse that's happened with biblical symbols. But we're a little bit wary when we come to symbols in Scripture. Last year, we spent 15 Sunday evenings preaching the type, some of the types of the Old Testament. A symbol is a very different thing than a type. But we've seen how people can take symbols and wrench them out of context and make them something they're not. And so we often just tend to not even look at clear symbols that are in the text. But they're too clear, so clear, they're vivid symbols, and they're here for a reason. And I will tell you, I could not have planned this better tonight. Because tonight, those symbols are the ark of God and the trumpets of God. I really appreciate Brendan Kelly reading my mind and standing up to give some background for that tonight. We're going to start with the first symbol that you'll see in the text, and it is the ark of God. Look closely at Joshua 6, and you'll notice the ark is referred to 10 times from verse 4 through 13. Now, you don't have to have a degree in hermeneutics, that is biblical interpretation, to know if God talks about something 10 times in a brief span. It's probably important. And so why is this small box, this box that could easily fit on top of this pulpit right here, why is this box, the ark, why is it brought to our attention with such force? Why is this box carried by the priest around the city of Jericho 13 times? Once a day for six times and then seven times on the seventh day. And why is it positioned, if you look at verse 8 and 9, right in the middle of this army of a million Israelite soldiers? Well, a few reasons why. And I want you to see at least a couple, maybe three if we have time. A couple of reasons why of what the ark is symbolizing. First of all, the ark was the symbol of the presence of God. If you look in our chapter, you see this this picture. Look at verse 8 and 9. We read, So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now what you see is this picture. The great city of Jericho. High walls, the residents of Jericho just barely peering over the high walls or looking out some of the windows that were on the wall. And what is it they see for a week? They see day after day, hundreds of thousands of soldiers marching around in silence while priests blow trumpets. And right in the middle of this procession, this must cause them to scratch their head inside of Jericho, right in the middle of this procession that goes around the city, they see a handful of priests carrying a 
a little wooden box on their shoulders. What does it symbolize? The first symbol that you should see whenever you see the ark going around the city is the ark symbolizes the presence of God with his people. That's the clear symbol. Now I want to challenge you at this point. Somebody just wrote, some very scrupulous note taker just wrote, Carl says the ark symbolizes the presence of God. Thankful for note takers like that. But I want to encourage you to be a Berean. I want you to go deeper. I want you to look at the scripture with me and see if these things are indeed so, because one of the problems with so much symbolic interpretation is someone will say, like I read this week, that the ark is actually foreshadowing the NASA rocket program. And you'll just say, well, that sounds great to me. And you'll, Carl took four semesters of Hebrew. He must know what he's talking about. Let me demonstrate to you biblically, as you should demand of any interpreter, the symbolism. Now, you're going to have to work here. Look at Numbers chapter 10. Keep one finger here. Numbers chapter 10. And I want you to see how the Lord teaches us to think about this symbol of the ark. Now, remember something about Joshua 6. When the people of God have come to the walls of Jericho, they have a Bible. At this point in redemptive history, here's what their canon of scripture is. Remember this very carefully. Their Bible is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and maybe Job. That's what they have and they know it well. It's read to them and preached to them and proclaimed to them. And so they understand this principle. Look carefully at Numbers 10, verse 35. And see what they think the ark represents. Remember, this is their Bible. We read in Numbers 10, 35. So it was whenever the ark set out. This is the ark of God that's going to go before the people on their travels through the wilderness. So it was whenever the ark set out that Moses said... Rise up, notice, not O ark, but O Lord. Do you see that? When the ark is being picked up to be carried out, Moses said, rise up, O Lord. Wait a second, it's the ark that's moving, but when the ark is put on the shoulders of the priest and they start to move along, what does Moses say as the ark moves out? Rise up, O Lord. Then look at Numbers 10.36. When the ark comes to rest, he says, return Not, O ark, but, O Lord. You see the way that the people of God think. They can't conceive of the ark without seeing the presence of God. The ark is the symbol of the presence of God with his people. When the ark is on the move, they say, there goes the Lord. He's moving ahead of us. There's a tight identification in the minds of Israel between the symbol and the presence of God. But there's an even clearer text to see this because I so deeply want you to see that this symbol is rooted, anchored in the text of scripture. There's an even clearer text to see how valuable and how precious the ark of God was to the people of God. Look at 1 Samuel 4. Again, 1 Samuel 4, we'll see another example of how the people of God viewed the ark. And what you're going to see is these people, the people of God, held with greatest delight to this high view of God's ark in their midst. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 11, Eli is the priest, and he has two scoundrel sons, 
Hophni and Phinehas. And the ark of God is captured in battle, captured by the Philistines. You see the soldiers of Israel taking the ark of God into the battle against the Philistines. The Philistines overtake them. They capture the ark. And notice what happens. Here's Eli. He's 98 years old. He's old, and Scripture goes into great detail to tell us he's, to use the polite term from our culture, he's morbidly obese. He's a fat guy. So here's Eli. You need to catch this as a father. Here's Eli who's old. He's a dad, and his two sons are in battle, and the ark is in battle. Now all of us, we know where our heart would be. What's the word going to be from the front lines? Any word on what happened to Hophni and Phinehas? But look at where Eli's priority is. We read in 1 Samuel 4.12, The man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside, watching for his heart trembled, not for his sons, but for the ark. For all his faults as a parent, and they were many, Eli's were. This man has a heart that pants after the things of God. Where's his heart? The ark has been taken out into battle, and look what Eli's trembling for. What's become of the ark of God? When the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. Eli heard the noise of the outcry, and he said, What does the sound of the tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim he couldn't see. The man came to Eli and said, I am he who came from the battle. I fled today from the battle line. He said, What happened, my son? The messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there's been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. What is it that's the knife in the heart of old Eli? It's not the news that his sons have been killed. As tragic and mournful as that was. We read when the messenger mentioned the ark of God. That that's when Eli fell off his seat backward by the side of the gate. As his neck was broken and he died. You see, what crushes Eli is this thought that the presence of God, the visible symbol that God is in the midst of his people, is no longer with them. It's been taken. The people of God are without the presence of God. And so Eli's crushed. Then notice what happens in his family. It's not just Eli who thinks this. Look at how the rest of the people view it. Look at verse 19 of this text. Eli's daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, who was with child, due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she gave birth, her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women said to her, Don't fear, you've born a son. But she didn't answer. She named the child Ichabod. I joke an awful lot from the pulpit, way too much. But I joke about what names I would love to baptize. I really don't ever want to baptize an Ichabod. Because the name itself is a combination word from Hebrew. The Hebrew word kabod stands for glory or weighty. But Ichabod means glory's gone. No more glory. The glory's departed. And why does she say that? Does she say that because her father-in-law is dead or because she's dying? No. Look at verse 22. The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. These people, when they saw the ark, it was precious to them. 
They said that's the proof the living God is in our midst. That's what the ark symbolized, the presence of God. Now, just as a side note, the ark of God also, when it's taken into enemy hands, it means the presence of God is now in their midst. Not for blessing, but for judgment. Look at 1 Samuel 5 and see that. I want you to, to get this so deeply down in your bones that the ark of God always means the presence of God. Look at 1 Samuel 5. So the Philistines have captured the ark. And look what happens in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 5. The Philistines took the ark of God, brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Dagon was their idol. When the people of Ashdod rose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. Now this is a glorious symbolic sermon itself. God will not be rivaled by any other. This is the death of pluralism, the death of polytheism. God will not tolerate any rivals. And so when the people of Ashdod wake up that next morning in their Philistine city, here's their idol on his face, licking the dust before the ark, showing that God's not pluralistic. He's not broad-minded. He says, I will put up with no posers, no fakes, no idols. So the Philistines, they don't get it. They think Dagon was maybe top-heavy. He was weighted too heavily in the front. So let's prop him up again. They prop him up and look at verse 4. When they arose early the next morning, there's Dagon falling on its face again before the ark of the Lord. But this time, his destruction has been approved upon, improved upon. The head of Dagon and the palms of his hands were broken off. And so the Lord is showing these Philistines, I am the true and living God. All your idols must fall and crumble before me. You would think that the people of Ashdod would say, hmm, our God seems to be a third-rate God. And we ought to worship this living God who makes all other gods fall down before him. But they don't reason that way. Look at how they reason. Look at 1 Samuel 5 verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod. They were struck with tumors. Why was the hand of the Lord heavy upon him? Because he was in their midst. The ark is the symbol of the presence of God. He's in their midst for judgment. The people of Ashdod, these Philistines, were ravaged and struck with tumors. When the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us. In other words, get this thing out of here. This God, the God of Israel, he's bringing judgment on us. Now notice what they don't do. You would think these Philistines would say, we need to quit suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. We've got the ark of God here. He's crushing our idol. We ought to stop worshiping Dagon and we ought to start worshiping the living God. But truth suppressors never reason that way. No, the best they can do is say, somebody get that box out of here, it's killing us. They don't reason correctly. And this shows the fallenness of the unbeliever's mind. But that ark, the ark that makes idolatrous gods fall down to worship, that ark that the people of God felt so endeared to, that ark that was the symbol of God's presence in their midst, that's the ark that's making 13 cycles, 13 laps around the city of Jericho. And when the nation of Israel sees it, once a day for the first six days, seven times on the seventh day, the people of Israel are strengthened and heartened and they say, there's our God. 
He's in our midst. The first thing that the ark symbolizes is the presence of God with his people. The second thing the ark symbolizes, it's the symbol. The ark is the symbol of God's covenant commitment to his people. The ark is the symbol of God's covenant commitment to his people. It's called repeatedly, for example, look at verse 6. It's called the ark of the covenant. It's called the ark of the covenant more times than we can even refer to dozens of times throughout the Old Testament. Five times alone in Joshua 3. And so when the people of God saw the ark, they were reminded of the covenant that Jehovah was in covenant with them that he had initiated and established a bond with them, that he had said to them, and no other nation on earth, I will be your God and you will be my people. The ark showed that God was their God to direct him by his law. They were the only nation that had this. Do you remember what's in the ark of the covenant? It's the covenant documents. It's not just an empty box. There's something in there. In Deuteronomy 10, God told Moses what to put in there. He told him, first of all, put in there the two tablets of stone. And the Lord says to Moses, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets. And so he's writing with, dare I say it, the finger of God, the ten words, the ten commandments. God's signature. God's handwriting is on those tablets that are inside the box. The holy law of God. Do you see why the people of God value the ark so much that they're saying, see that box that's going around Jericho? We have the signature of our God in that box. God has sworn an oath to us that he'll be our God and we'll be his people. And he said, I love you so much. I want to give you a reflection of my holy character because that's all the law is. The law is just a listing of God's character. Why does God say you shall not steal? Because God doesn't steal. Why does it say you shall not lie? Because God never lies. Why does it say you shall keep the Sabbath day holy? Because God labored six days and rested on the seventh. This law, written by the finger of God, is not burdensome. It's not a heavy yoke. It's the character of God. And so the people of God, when they see the Ten Commandments, when they see that our God, with his own finger, wrote out covenant directions for us, and it's in that box that's going around Jericho, they're strengthened. These are the covenant words of our God. How do we know that God has given us a covenant and a law? Because he wrote it out himself. They know they're in covenant because God has written the terms right there for them. But that Ark of the Covenant, and here's where it gets so much better. That Ark of the Covenant not only tells of God's law, it preaches the gospel. That Ark, as it's going around the city, is like a revival sermon circulating, making laps around Jericho. Because that Ark preaches the gospel. Think of what's on top of the Ark. We've just said that inside the Ark are the the stone tablets written by the finger of God, with the law of God on them. And if that were all in there, if that's all that were in the box, the Israelites would despair and say, I've broken that law times without number. When I look inside the ark and I see those ten words, I think I'm a coveter. I'm a liar. I'm an adulterer. 
I'm a thief. And all those tablets do is condemn me. But it's the little thing on top of the ark that preaches the gospel. Because it's known as the mercy seat. On top of the ark is that mercy seat, that little plate that sits on top. It's like a lid. And on it are the sculpture of the two cherubim facing each other. We're told in Exodus 25, that's where God comes and dwells, right there between the cherubim. The priest would come on the Day of Atonement. They would take the blood of a spotless lamb. They'd come into the Holy of Holies and they would stare at that ark. They couldn't come without blood. They couldn't just come in and say, well, I'm here for the Day of Atonement. I forgot to slay a spotless lamb. I'm just going to say some words, you know, hocus pocus. Let's see if God is pleased. They would have been struck dead. They came with blood. When they came into the Holy of Holies, the blood of a spotless lamb. And there's the ark. Inside the box is the law of God, the broken law of God. But on top of the ark of the covenant is the mercy seat. And the priest sprinkles the blood of a spotless lamb onto the mercy seat. And as he's doing so, the gospel is being preached. Christ is being prefigured because as he's doing so, he's, he's sending the picture. He's acting out the gospel message. Yes, God's law has been broken, but God has mercy because of the shed blood of the payment of sin. The spotless lamb of God. This shows us, by the way, how the wrath of God is satisfied. The law cries out from the ark for justice for its broken precepts. But over that law is placed the mercy seat, where an innocent substitute had to be slain, and its blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. Then God's demands were met. His wrath was satisfied. This, of course, is is preaching all through the Old Covenant. Is pointing to Christ, who's our priest, our spotless lamb, whose bloodshed saves us from wrath, who makes complete reconciliation between God and man. God can only be in covenant fellowship with his people if blood has been shed for sinners. Now notice this carefully about the ark. The bloodshed didn't eliminate covenant law. The blood of the lamb didn't erase what was written on the tablets in the ark. When blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, it satisfied the demands of the law, but it didn't take the commandments out of the ark and cast them away. It didn't say, now that the law's demands have been satisfied, you need not now strive to obey such a law. It didn't relieve one bit any Israelite then or any American now from seeking with all his might to obey the moral law of God. It simply meant that no one can ever think that we can by our law-keeping Establish a saving relationship with Jehovah. So I said there are two symbols, the ark and trumpets. How do we apply this first symbol of the ark? The ark preached the gospel as it circled the city. If you came here with the idea that the gospel is only a New Testament thing, brothers and sisters, the ark was preaching the gospel around Jericho 1,400 years before Christ was incarnate. It was preaching the gospel and saying, Jehovah is with his people. He saves his people by the blood of the mercy seat. Do you know what the ark was preaching to the people on the walls of Jericho? The same thing being preached here right now. As the people of Jericho looked out their windows in the walls, over the top of the walls, they saw this little box going around. The box paraded before their eyes every day, and it was saying, you've broken God's law. 
Here's his law right here in the box. And here's mercy offered. But if you refuse God's offer of mercy, the day of judgment will follow soon after. And that's exactly what happens here every Lord's Day. You're offered the free grace of God. And the minister stands in this pulpit and says, I'm offering you the mercy of God, but if you refuse it, the day of judgment follows soon after. But this is also a glorious picture with the ark and the soldiers carrying the ark of God. It's a good, sturdy picture of what theologians call the church militant. There's this distinction in theology between the church militant and the church triumphant. The church triumphant are those who have triumphed over the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're in heaven. So when a believer dies, we'll often say they've graduated and entered the church triumphant. But the church militant are those who still do battle on this earth against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are the church militant. And we gain instruction on how to be the church militant from these people that we look at in Joshua 6. As they march around the city, God in their midst, around their enemies. Notice what nobody's doing. No one's running off and doing guerrilla warfare on their own. Just one here and one there. No, they march together. And that's something that you and I need to learn about spiritual warfare. God has never intended for you to battle against your enemies alone. You're to rely on the corporate strength of the body of Christ. And so I would ask you, are you fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil alone? If so, you don't understand spiritual warfare. This chapter teaches us a clear picture of the corporate nature of our warfare. We sing about it in the mighty hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, when we say, like a mighty army moves the church of God. We're not to battle in our own strength or individually. We battle the forces of this present darkness together. Look at the second symbol in Joshua 6. The second symbol, and oh, this is a rich symbol, deeply rooted in Scripture. The second symbol we see is the symbol of trumpets. Now notice as well, you don't, again, you don't have to be that bright a student to to get this because the trumpets are mentioned 12 times times from verses 4 through 16. It's mentioned even more than the symbol of the ark. Now it has to be pointed out to us this evening if Wynton Marsalis or Dizzy Gillespie were to stand up right now and begin blowing his trumpet, it probably wouldn't have much spiritual meaning to you here, except it's a more attractive sound than my voice, I'm pretty sure. But if he were to stand up and do that, you'd say, I don't know what that means. That's not what the people of God said that day at Jericho. As soon as God tells them to blow the trumpets, they're saying, trumpets, oh, I get it. Why would they think that? Look back to Exodus 19. I told you you'd have to do some work. In Exodus chapter 19, and one of the key features you see as the people of God are gathered there at the bottom of Mount Sinai, God is about to to deliver to them the law of God, the Ten Commandments, He's making a covenant with them. And what is it they hear? What's the soundtrack for Mount Sinai? Trumpets. Remember, the people of God in Joshua, what's in their Bible? Exodus 19. They know about this. It's when God is going to come down and give his redeemed people, his delivered people, his gracious law and commandments. 
Now, do you know who else was there that day in Exodus 19? Joshua. He was a much younger man. He was 40 years old, but he heard the trumpets that day. He remembers this as an older man. Pick up the narrative in Exodus 19, verse 13 and following. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow, whether man or beast. This is, if somebody comes too close, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, I'm going to ask you in just a second, who's playing this trumpet? When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning, there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. The sound of the trumpet was very loud. Who's blowing the trumpet? The Lord is blowing the trumpet. The sound of the trumpet, we read, was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became loud and louder... Then Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Now listen to me carefully. The first thing that the trumpet symbolizes is this. When the trumpet blows, as it did here in Exodus 19, it means God is coming to confirm his covenant with his people. Did you hear that? That's what the trumpet meant in Exodus 19. God is coming to confirm his covenant with his people. Now, the next thing that, or when the people of God were told, trumpets, oh, that means Exodus 19. It means that God's coming to confirm his covenant. It means the Lord is here and he's our God. Trumpets, that comes before God comes down and dwells with us and gives us a word and confirms he's our God. The second thing the people of Israel would have thought about when it came to trumpets. Look at Numbers chapter 10. Again, I told you you'd have to work tonight. Some of you are going to... Your wrist is going to hurt. You're having to turn your pages so much tonight. The second thing they would have thought of when it came to trumpets was Numbers 10. Again, this is in their Bible. Yes, their canon was small, but Numbers 10 is in their Bible. God says to Moses in Numbers 10, verse 1, Make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregation and for directing the movement of the camps. When they blow both of them, all the congregation shall gather before you at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Do you know what this is? The second use of trumpets was for calling a sacred assembly. It was for calling all the people of God together. Now some of you, right now, just now, the lights came on for some of you. You said, oh. Calling the people of God together. Carl, I get it. Doesn't the New Testament say something about how when God calls his solemn assembly in 1 Thessalonians 4, how will he do it? Will he send everybody a simultaneous text and say, come up here? No, we're told in 1 Thessalonians 4 that he will blow a trumpet. And he will summon the dead out of their graves. He'll bring all the elect of all ages together. And what will be the signal that summons a a sacred, solemn assembly of all the people of God on that day? 
the sound of a trumpet. And that's exactly what the people are thinking right here. They know what to do. When the trumpet sounds, that means everybody come together. Quit your individualism and come together as God's people. And so the blowing of the trumpet means God's people are walking together as the ecclesia, as the assembly. Now again, the the symbolism of trumpets are rich in Scripture. The third thing that trumpets symbolize from Scripture, look at Numbers 10, same text, verse 9. God says, when you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, hmm, I wonder who, what that would be, maybe against the residents of Jericho, you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you'll be saved from your enemies. Look carefully at Numbers 10, verse 9. The symbol, the meaning of the symbol is now coming at us fast and furious. This was in their Bible before they marched around Jericho. What did God promise to do? He said, when you're in the land and you're going to go to war with your enemies, look carefully at verse 9, you blow the trumpet. Why? Who's going to be listening? And look at these rich words. So that you'll be remembered before the Lord your God. So think of it, the priests, when they're marching around Jericho, they don't have their trumpets pointed out like this blowing it in the ear of the guy in front of them. They have their trumpets pointed up to heaven. Look at Numbers 10, verse 9. They blow their trumpet heavenward. They're marching around the city, blowing their trumpet, saying, Lord, you promised in Numbers 10, verse 9, to remember us and to crush our enemies when we called on you with the sound of the trumpet. The trumpets mean, Lord, we're pleading with you to crush your enemies and give us victory. There's even more. There's at least a fourth symbol. Look at Leviticus 25. And again, all of this is in Israel's canon at that time. They would have known all of this because this is their Bible. In Leviticus 25, we have there the proceedings for the day and the year of Jubilee. Some of you don't know your biblical history, the year of Jubilee was a glorious time. It was to happen every 50 years. And during the year of Jubilee, if you'd lost family property, it was all given back. If you were a slave, you were released during the year of Jubilee. It was a great time of celebration for the whole year. It was freedom for slaves and restoration of land to rightful owners. What was about to happen to them, these people in Jericho? We're told in Leviticus 25 verse 9, and you shall cause the trumpet of the jubilee, the sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet sound through your land. How did you announce the year of jubilee? People didn't get a postcard in the mail. It was announced with a trumpet. The year of jubilee is here. All of God's blessings will now be poured out. He'll restore all your land that's been lost. He'll free slaves and he'll do great things in our midst. That's announced by the playing of trumpets. And so when the people of God were walking around the city, they hear trumpets play. And they're thinking, we are about to have our rightful land restored to us. The land that was promised to Father Abraham. This is our year of jubilee. Now, How does this apply to us? Listen carefully. This symbol of trumpets. What is it that we are doing when we cry out to God? When we pray, we're crying out to him with our voices towards heaven saying, 
Lord, you've promised to be a covenant God, to show mercy to us, to remember your promises, and to crush our enemies. Lord, we're crying out as loud as we can for you to remember your people. We are blowing our trumpets towards heaven. When these people were blowing their trumpets that day as they went around, they were crying out to God. God, remember you promised you would deliver us. That's what we do in prayer. As the priests were marching around, they were blowing trumpets continually. We read in Joshua 6 verse 13, they continued and they never stopped. They were sounding the trumpet for God to remember them as they go into battle. Every blast was a cry to God. Every trumpet note, remember us, fight for us, deliver us, crush our enemies. That's what they're saying with the blast of trumpets. And then that final blast would come on the seventh day. And God would come down and devastate their enemies. But Carl, why do they need to blow their trumpets in God's ear? He's not deaf. He doesn't need to be reminded, does he? No. But we need to constantly be trumpeting our need and our dependence upon God. These trumpets were a constant blaring of their reliance on God's supernatural strength to come and crush their enemies. Paul says in Ephesians 6.18 that we are to trumpet constantly in the ear of God our need. Well, the real translation says, pray without ceasing at all times, praying in the Spirit. What is it that you're doing every time you fall on your knees in your closet and say, Lord, my, my children are wayward and rebellious, save them. All you're doing is turning your trumpet towards God and saying, Lord, you've made a covenant promise, remember it. Every time when you go into your closet and you cry out to God, Lord, we're broke, we're devastated. All of these financial hardships have come upon us. Lord, remember your children and provide for us. What are you doing? You're just turning your trumpet towards heaven. Do you cry out to God this way? Do you cry out for help to defeat all your enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil? When you're struggling in sanctification, do you say, I'm just a loser and I can never get this right? Or do you turn your trumpet towards heaven and say, Lord, the only way I'll ever defeat my enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil is by your strength. And so, Lord, come down now and help your servant. Well, let me plead with you to be found often in your closet, trumpeting your need, your dependence upon God, and then watch him in faith as he crushes our enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. May God be pleased to confirm his covenant with us and destroy all his and our enemies as we call on him. Let's pray together. O sovereign Lord, how we praise you for the pictures you give us in scripture of grace and salvation. We praise you for the picture of the ark, that glorious symbol that shows us your holiness and your mercy in the shed blood of your son. We praise you for these pictures of these trumpets that show your willingness to come down and meet with your people and crush their enemies and deliver them. And so, Lord, hearten us, strengthen us for the battles that lie ahead, recognizing that you're our God, you're in our midst, and you will destroy all your enemies and vindicate your people. And so, Lord, give us boldness. Give us heart tonight as we go out into a world that is opposed to you. We pray this in Jesus.